Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Hi everyone, how are you? I hope that your week is going well so far. Thanks for all your lovely messages about last week's episode with Gino DeCampo. I'm so pleased you enjoyed it as much as I did. And as many of you pointed out, the show he was trying to remember at the end was in fact called fantasy island so go and check that out if you want to see what inspires Gino to go to Hawaii I am just back from the Cotswolds I was invited to stay at a new opening in Oxfordshire that has been really hyped in the travel world called Estelle Manor It's just a couple of hours drive from London. It's a hotel and a private members club set in a magnificent grade two listed landmark house. And it's surrounded by over 3000 acres of beautiful parkland and gardens. And really it had everything that you'd need for a perfect countryside holiday from a spectacular heated outdoor pool that's heated all year round, surrounded by the prettiest pinstripe parasols and sunbeds and a couple of cool bars, four amazing restaurants. There are a ton of outdoor pursuits that you can book, and there's the most incredible kids club for little ones with a huge and very classy indoor soft play. I have to say, I have been really dreaming of going back there this week. My daughter turned one, and a couple of days later came down with chickenpox not contracted at Estelle Manor, I should add. And yeah, I have been really dreaming of the clear blue skies and crisp autumn air of Estelle Manor when I have been stuck inside with no childcare. It's been so popular that it's continuing to grow. So it's one to watch for sure and felt like such a treat. So thank you, Estelle Manor, for having us. And today's guest is also a fan of the countryside, growing up around farms and wildlife. TV presenter Kate Humble has always had a fascination for nature. After leaving school, she travelled solo to Africa, working her way from Cape Town all the way to Cairo. On her return to the UK, she began working for TV production companies as a runner and then researcher on the holiday programme. And it was on her second day there when she was asked by the programme's editor if she had ever presented before. No, she said, and nor do I want to. Kate has been presenting programmes for over 20 years since, as well as writing articles and books, many with a focus around travel. In fact, she is now a beloved mainstay of British TV, having presented some of our most iconic shows, including Spring Watch, Autumn Watch, Country File, Lambing Live, and many, many more. We spoke at the Chelsea Townhouse, a new opening by Iconic Luxury Hotels. They're the brand behind some of Britain's most legendary properties like Chewton Glen and Cliveden. It's another hotel that 
that's been really hyped and has only just opened its door, so it was great to have a little look. It's tucked behind one of London's most fancy shopping districts, Sloane Street, and Kate and I sat in one of their homely suites overlooking its lovely garden and treetops. Really an unusual outlook when you're in the heart of London. Kate is what I would consider a true traveller. She is someone who sets off with pure wanderlust with a map and hiking boots and a rucksack and gets stuck in wherever she's heading. She tells us today about an extraordinary five weeks spent with a tribe who live north of Timbuktu in the Sahara Desert trading salt. She tells us about hiking through Afghanistan, exploring the rainforests of Borneo and tracking wildlife in Madagascar. There is so much to cover today, so fasten your seatbelts everyone and let's get started. Kate Humble, welcome to the Travel Diaries. It is so nice to see you today. Thank you for coming all the way to London to see me. How are you? I am very well. I know I'm it's always slightly nerve-wracking coming back to the big city uh, from yeah. the Welsh countryside, but yeah. it's lovely to be here. Tell me about where you live, because I know it's just such a beautiful spot. It is. I live in the Wye Valley, which... Uh, as a travel journalist, you will know, was one of the first places in Britain to become a tourist attraction. Mm. Um, and it was thanks to an amazing, uh, one of those sort of Victorian polymaths called William Gilpin, who uh, he was a sort of, he was a vicar. They were always vicars. Um, but he was also a writer and an artist. And the Wye Valley inspired him to come up with a new word for particularly spectacular landscapes and that word is picturesque no way yeah and what he wrote about the Wye Valley then inspired people like Coleridge and uh Mm. you know and all all sorts of poets and writers and thinkers to come to the Wye Valley and it became one of the first tourist attractions Mm. Does it feel touristy around where you are? Not particularly. Amazingly, given that I live quite close to Tintern Abbey, which is one of the most beautiful mm. buildings, mm. albeit ruined, but you know it is a very it's a very atmospheric ruin, um, and uh, so it's yeah it's it's not. I mean, there's there's always been uh, for some reason a bit of a you know you have to cross over into Wales and mm. people there there's a sort of. There's, there's been a kind of historical barrier, I think, you know, I mean, there is the literal border and there's Offa's Dyke, of course, which is right there. Um, but it's uh, people who know the Wye Valley and discover it absolutely love it. But it doesn't feel like it's not the sort of place that inspires mass tourism, mainly because there aren't any big towns nearby uh and 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 there aren't you know there aren't kind of obvious attractions it's one of those places that you go and you discover it yourself either on foot or you go canoeing or you cycle but it's a place that you sort of have to make a little bit of an effort but that effort is 100% worth it Mm, I mean I have rediscovered it through the Netflix series Sex Education which is filmed there and the the kind of vistas and and how picturesque it looks. I mean, they really sell it, don't they, in terms of its beauty? Absolutely. I mean, Sex Education was literally filmed about two villages up the valley from where I live. No way, that place. So that lower, that's the sort of lower Y Valley, which is Mm -hmm. the section between Chepstow and Monmouth, um, is very steep-sided. It's quite dramatic landscape. There's a lot of forest. Um, The river is kind of tucked 
down into into a sort of ravine almost. It's very green. You get this wonderful thing that is known locally as the dragon's breath. And it's starting to happen. It tends to happen in the autumn. So it'll just start to happen now. And it's the temperature for inversion when you have cold air and the warmer water of the river and you get what looks like dry ice it looks like a 1970s pop video Uh, (laughs) you you know you get this sort of low mist that hangs over the river and because of the steep-sided valleys you get this sort of magical mist exactly and 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 you know and lots of things like Merlin and stuff have been filmed around that area as well so it does have this very kind of mythical magical feel about it it is it is glorious and I I can't really believe that every morning I wake up and walk out into that landscape. It's it it makes my heart lift every time. So good for the soul. It really is. <laughs> so today, Kate, we're gonna go on a journey through the seven chapters of your life's travel diaries. Yes. I mean, so much travel to cover today, but we're gonna probably just scratch the the tip of the iceberg we go back to the very beginning for chapter one and that is your earliest childhood travel memory well my early my earliest childhood travel memories is perhaps a surprise to you given how much I have traveled now in my life I wasn't a very good traveler I was the most carsick child ever invented. Um, We lived a mile outside a village and I would throw up just going to the village shop. Oh my gosh. So my earliest childhood travel memories are of being in the car in the back and saying to my parents, are we nearly there? I mean, literally it was the, are we nearly there yet? Because I need to be sick again. (sighs) And it was the misery. It was the misery of traveling, of being in the car. And I can remember a journey. We'd been to see my grandmother who lived in Hertfordshire, which wasn't very far away. And, and it felt like we'd been in the car forever and ever and ever. And of course you have to remember Holly that I'm quite old. So, you know, this was the sort of 70s. She sadly doesn't look it. Thank you. Um, (laughs) She's being kind. Um, But so this is a 70s. So, you know, no one had invented kind of in-car entertainment. You had to pay a lot of I spy through yes, the window yeah. and that kind of thing. And um, so there we were and, and cars were quite uncomfortable and you stuck to the plastic seats and those sorts of things. And um, and I remember saying, how far is it till we get home? And dad saying it was 34 miles and 34 miles felt like 34,000 miles so I didn't have a very happy or auspicious start to my traveling career (laughs) I basically didn't want to travel at all so I mean I'm assuming you've grown out of that since Uh, a little bit but I'm not very good at I'm not very good at read I can't really read in a car Mm -hmm. um if I have to map read and again Apologies to everyone who doesn't know what that means because they've always used sat nav and, <laughs> and, and map apps. Um, but uh, yeah, map reading isn't good on windy roads. And funnily enough, and I don't know whether this is a reflection in, uh, of the cars that I grew up with, um, but posh cars, you know, very kind of well sprung. I don't spend much time in posh cars, I hate to add, but um, yeah, those posh cars, they're the worst. Really? Yeah. Why do you think that is? I think it's all that sort of cushioning. I think if you're if you're kind of you know properly bounced about a bit, you're all right. Yeah, and I have your, your done. brain is probably being distracted it's, by the, exactly, the other things going exactly. on. Exactly, and I have done some spectacularly uncomfortable road journeys in the years since. You know, in kind of I, I travelled through um, through uh, Guatemala. 
um, and, and, and parts of Mexico. And quite often the buses, if you were taking a bus, were old American school buses made for children so and I'm you know five foot nine so I'm relatively tall and you just couldn't fit in the seat you know, so oh I've, I've and yeah I've done some quite uncomfortable road journeys never sick on those put me in something posh and I'm hopeless well we have something in common because we're both travel journalists travel writers and I I get motion sickness on planes which is also not ideal not ideal no. so you're okay on planes well so here's the other thing I have had to teach myself to be not terrified of flying so I mean this is the most ridiculous thing my one grandfather my mother's father was in the RAF in the war was an was a rear gunner was one of the bravest men ever my other grandfather my dad's father was a test pilot so also insanely brave and you know flew that was his life he flew and then I come along and really would much rather never get in a plane ever. And for, I mean, I didn't, you know, that was the other thing. As a child, we didn't go abroad. You know, people didn't go on foreign holidays then because it was just too expensive. I mean, you just didn't do it. We went to... There weren't budget flights. No, Yeah, it wasn't that kind of culture. I didn't go on a plane really until my very late teens, probably. Actually, no, that's not quite true. I think there was one time where my mum said, I am just not going to another holiday cottage and just sweating away in somebody else's kitchen again. And also, you know, it used to rain a lot. You know, the weather has changed, actually. You know, British summers were famously bad. And so there was one time when I was about possibly 12, I think that might have been the first time I went abroad and we went to Corfu. But other than that, I'd never been on a plane. And I was terrified. And as I got older, it got worse. And As it often does, actually. As it often does. Like, I used to not care at all yeah. when I was younger either. Yeah, yeah. And I got to a stage where I had to take beta blockers to go to an airport, um, let alone get on a plane. And I had this slightly embarrassing, although it's kind of a lovely story because it's a story about kindness. I was trying to wean myself off having to take beta blockers to get on a plane because it's not ideal. And also everyone thinks that you might have taken something illegal and there you get searched quite a lot. <laughs> I was patted down on no uncertain terms in Lusaka Airport once. Um, and so I had, I thought I was go- flying up to Edinburgh. I was doing uh, some work at the Edinburgh Festival and um, I thought, right, this is perfect. It's a really short flight. Um, I don't need to take beta blockers to get on this plane. So I'm standing at the queue uh, to get on the plane and I get the palm sweat and the, you know, the heart racing. And I'm just thinking, I can't, I can't get on the plane. I can't. And I had the pills with me just in case. So I took, of course, it's not going to, I mean, you know, I needed half an hour at least for them to kick in. So they didn't kick in. So I sit down on the plane and I'm in an aisle seat and it was the kind of red eye you know so there's quite a lot of businessmen on this flight and there was a businessman sitting next to me and it was in the days when if you got on a plane you got fed you didn't have to buy some horrible roll you know you actually got food it was quite a nice experience in yeah. those days so I'm sitting there and I'm holding on to the armrests and clearly knuckles white And the man, the businessman, you know, in his suit and everything, clearly noticed that I was looking like I was about to have a meltdown. And he said, I hope this isn't an inappropriate question, but would you like me to hold your hand? And I was like, yes, please. And I 
got hold of his hand. The yeah. poor, and I didn't let go for the whole flight. He's trying to eat his breakfast <laughs> with one hand, and I'm gripping this poor man's hand. Don't let go. Just don't let go of me. Don't let go of me. And it was so, so kind. Um, and yes, it, it took me a long time to be able to fly and not think about it. It was, it was in the end, it was a case of just doing it so much yeah. that... Um, I, I didn't have the energy to be scared anymore. I think a lot of the listeners will find that story really comforting because when you get on a plane, you see everyone, you know, especially on long haul flights, they're putting on their pajamas and they're putting on their masks. And I'm looking around being like, how are you guys so relaxed? Like you're getting ready for your eight hours of sleep. Like what the actual, like this is definitely not something I could ever engage with. Yeah. But then the more that you kind of speak to people, you realize actually that a lot of people do have anxiety about flying in in all kinds of different ways yes so yeah I think yeah. it's 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 kind of relatable yeah and 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 you've you've still managed to travel the world we yes. all find our ways to manage exactly yeah. exactly yeah <laughs> a really good book a noise cancelling headphones that that was the game changer discovering yeah. those yes yeah that is a big deal now I've got a baby those noise cancelling headphones yeah yeah <sighs> can't really wear those anymore <laughs> shame but you still had a real desire to travel from a young age, it seems, because leaving school and home at 18 and then going off to Africa on your own, yeah. I mean, that is an in, an innate intrepidness. Well, that's very sweet of you to call it that. I think my parents would call it teenage rebellion and just being <laughs> right. kind of, you know, arsy for the sake of it, probably. But um, I did... I've always had, and and I think, you know, if somebody says, if someone were to ask me, what's the thing that you, asset isn't quite the right word, but let's call it an asset, because I certainly see it as an asset. What is the thing that you were born with that you, you feel luckiest? Um, good health is one. Uh, but the other is this absolutely unquashable sense of curiosity. Um, and, you know... It's, it's really what led me to do what I do, you know, the TV work, the writing and the traveling have all come from just being kind of nosy, actually, but just wanting to find things out. And when um, I left school, so I left school in, the, in 1987 and um, I went to a very, it was a very rigid, very academic school. I basically spent six seven years whatever it was learning how to take and pass exams yeah. um and to me that's not education um and uh so when I left school even though the whole point of me being there what I'd been channeled towards was to go to university the last thing I thought I was going to do was that and admittedly you know it was a long time ago but it wasn't that different from now you know you were still told if you don't go to university your life is basically going to be over. You will get no, you will never be given a proper career. You yep. will never be able to, you will, yep. you'll, you won't be a success. And I thought, well, I don't know. I'm just going to do things differently. And all my friends who were going to university, a lot of people were taking gap years. And that was quite, uh, that was a, a relatively well-established thing, but very different from now. So they weren't organized. You know, now people go on organized gap years, which I've, I find a little bit disappointing and a little bit sad. Um, 
in my day, people tended to go, they would get a ticket to India, they get a ticket to Australia. Those were the sort of two centres that people would go to. And there was a kind of backpacker's route, and but everything was done by word of mouth because, of course, there was no internet then. There yeah. was no, you know, there was no social media. So it was kind of done, as I say, by word of mouth. There were these wonderful, old, the old travel guides, the kind of rough guides and yeah. the Lonely, Lonely Planets. Planets yeah. um, and... Uh, my best friend at school, she and I had decided that we were going to go to Australia together. But the big difference was when we left school, she was going to go to university. So she had a time limit uh, of when she could go because she had to come back. And she also, her parents had their own business. So she had worked for her parents' business and earned money to be able to go traveling. Right. I didn't have any money at all. But also, I didn't have a time limit. So basically, I had to spend the next few months earning the money to be able to go traveling and mm-hmm. to go and meet her in Australia. So that was the plan. We would, I would meet her. And while I was trying to earn the money and I was living in a storeroom in a house in Oxford for £20 a week, all bills included apart from the phone, um, and I was working in a pub at night and at weekends and I was doing kind of temp secretarial work during the day, um, she was. She would write. She would send me letters. Those air, old airmail letters. Do you remember those oh, lovely with the crispy big stickers with on. the big stickers and that lovely lightweight oh, crispy paper that was so exciting? And I would get these letters from her, telling me what an amazing time she was having, but also saying, "Guess who I've bumped into?" And some part of my, I don't know. I suppose my my sort of obstreperous teenage brain went. I don't want to go to the other side of the world and meet people I know. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to do that. And someone I'd met while I was doing my typing course, which, you know, was an awful thing to do, but actually has stood me in very good stead. Being able to type is quite a handy thing. Um, As a writer. (laughs) As a writer. As an anything now. Um, And uh, I met a South African girl on the course. Um, And, you know, in those days, South Africa was still in apartheid. Um, South Africans weren't traveling very much. She was able to travel because actually her family were English. So she had an English passport. Um, Anyway, she and I became great friends. And she told me, she started telling me about Africa. And I was, I was like, oh my goodness, this, it sounds amazing. So suddenly I thought, I'm not going to go to Australia and see people I know. I'm going to go to Africa um, because, because why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I go? Yeah. And, and, and there was, I mean, I'm so ashamed of it now because my parents, you know, were, were and remain the kindest, most encouraging, most wonderful people. Um, and I knew it would shock them that I was going somewhere that was quite, you know, dangerous and dark and, you know, who, you know, no one really knew about Africa, you know. And, and I thought, that's why I want to go. Yes. That's why I want to do it. That's and very so, brave, I think, well, as well. I don't think it, it didn't feel brave. I was, by the time I'd saved up the money, so it took me eight months, I can remember, to this day, I can remember, used to check your bank account, used to get, you know, um, statements sent with your your bank account. And I can remember it took me eight months from leaving school 
to have a thousand pounds saved up in my bank account and I knew then I could go and buy the plane tickets and I can remember the day seeing I've got a thousand pounds a thousand pounds it was just like the most unbelievable amount of money and going and working out the cheapest possible way Uh, and I went on Air Zambia which doesn't even exist anymore (laughs) it shouldn't really have existed then it was terrifying experience but um, I bought my tickets and I went to Africa with no plan to come home and I literally I went I had by the time I left I had 800 pounds spending money which I hid in my sock I had my rucksack and I had gigs the girl I'd been at um, college with I had her contact details and her family and that was it that was it and you know and and people say, gosh, it was brave. It, it's only brave when you are scared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oh, that, I mean, that sounds so incredible. And and so you are out in Africa. Chapter 2K is the first place that you fell in love with. Was it that experience? It, it completely was. I mean, I think it's it's funny. Um, I suspect it's not unusual that people fall in love with the first kind of formative journey that they take or the, mm. the, the country that they take their, their, their formative journey in. And, um, and, and, there is something about the continent of Africa. You know, it's it's it, a mistake often that people make is you just say Africa and kind of lump it into one country. But of course it's not. It's this glorious, complex, uh, varied, um, astonishing continent. And, um, and I found it completely bewitching in all sorts of ways. You know, when you've come from the Berkshire countryside... And even just, I remember the first morning I was there and, uh, and I was staying in, in Giggs's parents' house uh, in Johannesburg and I looked out of the window and on the grass outside were these two amazing birds just feeding on the grass, you know, just on the lawn. These were like big, black, glossy, beautiful, long-billed birds. And I was yeah. like what on earth are those? You know, I'm used to seeing sparrows and robins. Yeah. And they went, oh, they're just hardy dars. And the hardy dar is as an ibis, um, but it makes it, it makes a call that goes, hardy dar, hardy dar. <laughs> um, so they're known as hardy dars, obviously. And I was just, I was just, 
you know, amazed. I was amazed by that. And I remember doing a road trip, um, driving down to Cape Town, and again, seeing this astonishing bird, this kind of lilac and turquoise bird sitting on a on the wire of a telegraph, you know, telegraph wire. And, and again, saying, stop the car, stop the car, what's that? And they're like, oh, it's just a lilac-breasted roller. They're everywhere. And I'm like, I've never, you know. And so there's a lot of reasons why I still feel this leap of it is it is like a it's like seeing somebody you love when I go back to Africa and uh to almost anywhere um on the continent and one is that uh it was a place that made me see nature in a new way um it may and it made me appreciate then what we've got at home too but it made me look at the natural world because it was strange and and I I was absolutely you know enraptured by these extraordinary birds these I got a job as a uh, truck driver for a safari company mm. and um and, and where you were know, you then so I drove from Cape Town through Botswana and finished at Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe so oh, um what a reach. The, it was amazing so the clients were all flown in light aircraft and there was me and, and, and a guy and we were car- we were basically carrying all the heavy stuff all the camping equipment and all the food and everything else uh overland and we had to drive I remember we drove through the top of the Kalahari desert and it was so hot we had bottles of water that we then made coffee with because it had just got <laughs> oh to the point goodness. where you know it was ridiculous and we tried frying eggs on the bonnet and all yeah, that kind of yeah. stuff it was unbelievably boiling but you know just I had to spend this 19 year old girl from Berkshire who knew nothing I remember you know we were camping and then it was just I mean we were wild camping and one of our jobs as as kind of the staff sort of was at night we had to guard the campsite so I had to sit we did shifts and I had to sit by myself on the bonnet of the Land Rover with a searchlight shining it around and there would be all these eyes in the bushes I didn't know whether they were lion or whether they were you know, springbok or what they yeah. were. Um, but the idea was that we, you know, that we kept big predators out of the camp. Absolutely terrifying, but wonderful. I imagine, did you find that quite exciting? Incredibly exciting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it was just, I suppose, again, if you've been sort of, if you if you don't have a reason to be scared, I mean, it's quite a dangerous position to be in because yeah. you can, you know, feel completely overconfident. But it was, but it was incredible. And things like, you know, I'd never seen a night sky like it. And the sounds and the smell, there's a, something about the smell of, particularly when it rains and it falls on that dusty red earth. And, 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 and I, I remember going back I went back and did an I did an extraordinary journey for, for it was a for a newspaper story I went back to Cameroon and I'd never been to Cameroon before um and the plane landed in Douala and as I came off the plane and I was just hit by the smell of hot red earth and 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 just I don't know just the kind of there's something about the quality of the air and I just thought I feel completely at home here even though I've mm. never been here before Ugh. And so part of why I fell in love with Africa was that, 
you know, was was the natural world was 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 kind of like being slapped around the face by the the you know by the astonishment uh, that was the natural world. But it was also, and this is true, I think, of so many travel experiences for for so many of us. It was people. It was the people, and I have never experienced kindness and generosity like it Mm. and you know so many people who have so little will give you so much to make sure that you're safe and happy and the the as I say the hospitality and the generosity that I received in that first trip and I've been back to different parts of Africa I mean I ended up being there for the best part of a year I traveled completely by myself I hitched um I you know did all sorts of things that you know are probably massively inadvisable (laughs) but I was beautifully looked after and I will you know the African continent and the African people will remain so so much part of my heart because of that yeah oh that's beautiful and if you were if if somebody of that age was to come to you now and say I I'd like to do something like that. Oh, I'd love to go to Africa on mm. my own, mm. maybe a, a woman in particular. Mm. What what country would you tell them to go to first, do you think? It's a really good question. And I'm not sure I know, really, um, because I think it, it, it so much depends on an individual. Um, you know, I don't think... There, there isn't a simple one answer like to a, a question like that. All, yeah. There isn't a one size fits all. And for some people, you know, going to, uh, I mean, I remember I was in Ethiopia um, uh, one year and there were people that I met, you know, other foreigners, other tourists there. I was there for about two months and traveling completely just on public transport and camping and you know sort of quite off the beaten track stuff and found it very very difficult it was a very difficult country to travel in for all sorts of reasons um and met other foreigners there who were really struggling and they thought that was Africa and I said it's not yeah it's just this there's there's just something about this country about attitudes about that that make it a bit more challenging but equally you know i've met people who've who've been there and been you know absolutely loved it so, so your great friend ben fogel came on the podcast yeah his all-time favorite destination was lalibela in ethiopia so yeah. he had a different experience. He had a different experience. Yeah. And so I think it's it's sort of dangerous, really, to say to someone, oh, you should definitely go there or start there. We've all done it. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's your favorite restaurant even. Yeah, and then, or hotel Or as hotel well. yeah. or, yeah. you know, I always feel, you know, the, 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 the kind of the web-based, the sort of TripAdvisor type things, you know, they're so subjective. Totally. And, and I think it's, it is... You know, it's kind of, in a way, I just think, let your curiosity lead you. You know, make the decision yourself. If you want to do it, just do it, Mm. you know. And if you don't like it, there's no shame in that. Change, go somewhere different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we move on to chapter three. And that is a place where you learn the most about yourself. Where would that be? Well, I had 
still have really uh, an obsession with um, the the old way that people travelled, or the or the old reasons why people travelled, and trade. You know that was those old trade routes that crisscross the continents. I think it that's fascinating. I think the you know the history of those routes, how language and uh, goods and you know it was it, everything was traded cultures. Um, it was a way of the world opening up. And I'd always been fascinated by those those old roots and 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 what they did, how they how they turned the world into the melting pot that it is today. Yes. And there was one route, and I don't know, I can't remember the moment that I read about it or heard about it, but there was, and it was one of those really sketchy bits of sort of information that for some reason lodges in your head, and it was this. Salt is traded across the Sahara from Timbuktu. Now, that's not mm-hmm. actually entirely correct, mm-hmm. as I now know. Okay. But there was something about Timbuktu. I think anyone who has a traveler's bone in their body is intrigued by Timbuktu. Yes. Does it actually exist? Yeah. You know, is it a mythical place? Is, you know, is it really there? And then for me... I've always been fascinated by deserts. There's something about that sort of space, that perception of emptiness. Is it really empty? You know, does really nothing happen there? Mm. You know, there's again, there's something kind of infinite about a desert. And, you know, what what is it to be in a place like that? It is so alien to someone who has grown up, you know, in the southeast of England. So... The kind of bewitching combination of uh, Timbuktu, mythical place, Sahara Desert, the ultimate desert, and a trade route, someone trading salt, you know, some a, a kind of a good, you know, a commodity that is absolutely the root of life and apparently had more value than gold at one point. Mm. So all those things kind of conspired to make me want to cross the Sahara with the salt traders of Timbuktu. Now, this was early 90s. Right. And uh, so internet, not really there. Uh, I start doing some research. I find there's a, an embassy. Mali has an embassy. To, or first of all, I find out that Timbuktu does indeed exist. It's there and it's in a country called Mali in West Africa. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. So I'm, you know, I'm getting somewhere. Now, has Mali got an embassy in the UK? No, it doesn't. But it does have one in Brussels. So I get in contact with the uh, embassy and, and I say, I'm quite interested to go to Timbuktu. Is that possible? And they said, absolutely not. There's a war going on. And there was a war raging in northern Mali at that time in the sort of uh, uh, early to mid 90s and so I thought okay well probably not the ideal time to try and do this journey but the idea of doing that journey would not go away for tv or for just personal enjoyment just for me just like between jobs yeah yeah I'm a freelance you know that's the joy I can do do whatever I like yeah um within reason uh so i um i decided so i basically bided my time 
but kept, you know, just sort of kept the eye on the situation. How's that war getting on? You know, what's going on? And eventually it gets to sort of beginning of 1999. The war is over. I'm back in touch with the embassy. They said, yes, the war is over. Um, and I said, I'm interested in um, in the salt trade. I wasn't. I didn't say I wanted to do it because for some reason I thought maybe they wouldn't let me. Um, mm -hmm. So I just said, I'm interested in finding out more about the salt trade and whether it still happens and, you know. And they said, oh, they put me in touch with an aid agency, with, a, with an American aid agency based in Timbuktu. And they, a lot of aid agencies had moved in during the war and based themselves on the outskirts of Timbuktu. Right. And by now there was email. Um, it was still in its infancy and it was dial up and <laughs> all that going on. But I could email somebody in Timbuktu. Miraculous. Yeah. And so I emailed this American woman and I said, and I explained, I kind of want to do a journey and I'm just interested to know whether the traders are still trading. Are they, you know, do they still, does it still happen? And she came back and she said, um, I believe it does. Uh, there's not a great deal I can tell you. Really, if you want to, find out more about it or take any do any part of the journey you're just going to have to get here and find out for yourself gosh right so I thought okay that's what I'll do then <laughs> um and my husband uh was he was due to be going to France to do a documentary about volcanoes he speaks fluent French and he's a filmmaker um and that's what he was supposed to be doing and he's like you cannot go and do this journey on your own and I'm like of course I can I've done loads of traveling on my own. Of course I can. He said, your French is rubbish and that's the colonial language. Mm -hmm. And he said, secondly, you know, how, I mean, how's this going to work? How? And I said, well, I've, I've no idea, but it'll be fine. He said, I'm just really not comfortable about going on your own. Why can't you wait? And I said, I, I don't know, but I know I can't wait. I know I've got to do it. And at the same time, I was just... I say breaking into presenting on television. I'd never wanted to be on television. No, I loved, yeah. I loved researching. You were a researcher. I was a researcher. I loved doing that. Producer. But I just, you know, I'd been doing some presenting, and and I'd been offered this really big series for BBC Two, and I said I can't do it because I'm going to the Sahara. <laughs> they went what? <laughs> and I said, I'm going to the, I can't, I can't do this series because I'm going to the Sahara. And they, I mean, they looked at me like I was mad and they said, go later. I said, I can't, you don't understand. This journey is done twice a year. It's done in November and it's done in January. Oh, right. There are specific yes, windows. Because think about it. It's the Sahara. It's plus 50 and beyond during the day. So you have to do it in the winter months. Yeah. They only, and they do it twice because it is a monster journey. It is biblical and epic and takes 40 days, 40 the days. round trip. Right. And, you know, you're traveling, you're traveling by a camel and you're traveling at night most of the time because it, even in the winter, it's so hot during the day. You know, you don't just pick and choose and say, oh, I'm going to turn up in March because it's more convenient to, to do a BBC series or your husband's telling you you can't go because he's busy filming in front. I mean, you just note, have to get on with it. If I was a BBC commissioner, I would so be like, OK, let's pivot this BBC programme to be this new concept because it is such a fascinating prospect. Well, why don't you just apply for the job? 
you know, it would have been lovely. So I carried on with my plans, um, found flights to Bamako and thought, well, if I get to Bamako, which is the capital of Mali, I'll then be able to find a way, whether it's overland or internal flights or something to get to Timbuktu. The American aid agency woman said, well, you know, I can help you out. We've got a really basic accommodation. You can stay here while and I'll introduce you to the guy it's a local guy who might be able to help with logistics and so on. And um, and then, much, I think, to my husband's relief, and it has to be said, to mine in the end, uh, his series was cancelled. And so he said, I'm going to come too. So we got to Bamako. We then went overland to Mopti. And then we got an internal flight. It was a Russian plane that was... I kid you not, was held together with masking tape. Ugh. And we landed in Timbuktu. And I couldn't believe I was there. Was it everything that you... Well, you did, it, it was, felt mythical, so it what did, was it? it? Well, it was, it, was, it was partly the mythical... I mean, there were these incredible, you know, mud buildings with the, the, the kind of sticks that stuck out of them, these ancient libraries and things, but they looked like they grew out of the sand. So there were these ancient mud buildings. Yeah. But then this sort of odd contrast of the road that led into the main part of the city was lined with kind of aid agencies and all the kind of detritus of the war. And right. so it was this strange mix. I mean, you couldn't call it beautiful. There were beautiful bits of it. And But what was so extraordinary was that it was there at all. You know, there was this habitation surrounded by sand. Yeah, You know, it was just, it, I mean, it really did feel like you'd kind of walk through the back of the Narnia wardrobe into, into I don't know, what, you know, you couldn't yeah. really... Just seemingly so inhospitable. Yeah, sort of inhospitable, but, but so unlikely. Why is it here? You know, what, <laughs> yeah. what's it doing here, this ancient, be- sort of beautiful, but in a bleak kind of end of the world sort of feeling place yeah and there were you know the Tuareg these amazing nomadic people in their indigo robes and their and their turbans and and there were camels and there were piles of dates and dust and I mean it was and and the light I remember the light the sky was it was so bleached it was almost kind of orange white the sky because of the sort of heat and the dust and the i mean it was it was extraordinary it was like nowhere i'd ever ever experienced and the american aid agency lady she was called anne i'll never forget her she was so generous and so helpful and she introduced us to shindug and shindug uh did take i mean tourists did get there um, and he would take them out on camels into the desert, uh, which was kind of just there. And they would go and have, you know, a couple of hours pottering around the desert on a camel and get a sort of Sahara experience. Mm-hmm. And I said, OK, we don't want to do that. What we want to do is do the salt route. We want to go to the salt mines. And he said, but that's impossible. And I said, well, is it? I mean, 
is it really impossible? And he said, okay, well, let's sit down. What do you actually, how do you want to do this? And I said, well, I don't, tell me about, tell me about the route, tell me how it works. And he said, well, there are caravans that go. And he said, they're smaller now because after the war, a lot of the camels were killed. Uh, mm. A lot of people were killed. Mm. A lot of these, the, 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 there are two tribes, if you like, the Tuareg, who are the kind of, everyone knows of the Tuareg, you know, the, the indigo men. And then mm-hmm. there are the Berabish. And the Berabish, they they describe themselves as the ancestors of two separate brothers. So there was a warring brother, and he was the ancestor of the Tuareg. And then there was a peaceful brother, and he was the ancestor of the Berabish. So the Berabish are semi, semi-pastoral nomads. Mm-hmm. They have their camels. They have their goats. Uh, they live in the in the kind of what they call the Petit Desert, uh, the area around Timbuktu that has some vegetation not very much but sort of scrubby Mm -hmm. trees and things like that and they're the ones that trade the salt and they travel 1500 kilometers north to almost the uh, Libyan border where there is uh, a place that is like a Hieronymus Bosch vision of hell and it is these salt mines that are mined by slaves this is what this is 99 99 yeah and they have slaves who Uh, work for them so each trader has their slaves and their slaves mine the salt by hand it's because it's an old dried out sea and there's three layers of the salt and the deepest layer which is a few meters down is the purest and the salt at the top is kind of rubbly and hopeless so the slaves would mine the salt six days a week and on the seventh day whatever they mined was theirs to keep so that was kind of how they were paid if you like. And their trader at the end of the season, which was about four to five months, would bring back their slaves with their salt. That was sort of their payment. We will bring the salt back for you on our camels because slaves don't have camels. Mm. And then the slaves could trade it and that would be how they made their living. Um, So it was feudal. I mean, it was, yeah. at, it was like medieval. It was absolutely medieval. Did, did you know? I mean, had you read about that? No, had, I didn't so know. I found all this out when I was there. While you were there, right. So, but what Shindu explained is that the, the, ca- the caravans leave from all over, you know, all around about. He said it would be impossible for you to travel up with a caravan because you can't find them. They'll just leave from wherever their encampment is. <sighs> and they, you know, they're nomadic. They're just, they just move around. Yeah. But he said what we could do is we could get a driver... And we could drive to the salt mines. I will negotiate with a caravan because uh, we we'll pay. You know, we're not we weren't expecting this for nothing. We would we knew we would we would pay our way. He said, "I'll negotiate with a caravan, and you can travel back to Timbuktu with the caravan." We're like, "Great, that sounds perfect." Mm. Now it turns out that Shinduk was something of a. I mean, he was a genius within. 24 hours of us were arriving in Timbuktu, he'd found a driver, a car, a, well, an off-road, you know, off-road vehicle, a guide because driving across the Sahara, there's no roads. There were no roads. You basically need someone who can read the sand. Otherwise, we'd have been stuck in, you know, dunes and what have you. Um, we, he took us to the market. He said, you have to wear what we wear. So we, I've still got mine. Uh, we had, we had, outfits you know robes and loose trousers and turbans he said you have to have a turban because it keeps the sun off your head Mm -hmm. um we bought dates we bought rice we bought millet and we bought 
petrol and we bought tea and we bought sugar. And that was our supplies. And we set off literally within 24 hours of arriving in Timbuktu. We were driving. And uh, we drove, we camped overnight uh, in the sand. And then we set off the next day. And a large, crucial part of the car fell off. Something, I don't know what it was. Fell off. Fell off. So clearly, we weren't going to be able to go anywhere. So we managed to limp back to this little oasis place that we'd passed. And the idea was that we would send somebody by camel, because there were camels at that place, back to Timbuktu, and they would pick up another vehicle, get order another vehicle effectively and this might take a week so we're like fine well we'll just you know I mean it it'd been so smooth by now up until now it was almost disappointing I'm thinking this isn't a, this isn't an expedition it's just kind of it's like it's like something you get out of a tourist brochure uh so we're sort of happy about this anyway as we're limping back to you know this little oasis settlement we see a caravan of people three men 50-odd camels heading north. And we just, and Shindu goes, oh, look, there's a caravan heading north. And we went, oh, yeah. And I went, hang on, hang on a minute. That's a ca- They're doing what we want to do. And I said, can't we, can't we join them? And Shindu said, well, oh, okay, I'll go, I'll, I'll see. So he gets out of the car and suddenly there's all this going on you know and you're like what's going on yeah is this is this a good noise or a bad noise <laughs> yeah. anyway it turned out it was a good noise they all knew each other um and they were somehow related to shinduk and so poor things uh shinduk it was something to do with family structure shinduk was kind of higher up in the family as i say the family tree yeah so these poor men were not allowed to say you have got to be kidding there is no <laughs> way we're taking two foreigners off with us to go and get the salt they kind of had to agree so we literally unpacked all our sacks of rice and tea and everything else and Shinduk said well I'm gonna have to come with you because there's this great honor it's a very Islamic thing this if you make a if you make an arrangement you stick to it and his arrangement was Mm -hmm. I said I would take you to the salt mines so he said I will come with you I mean, thank goodness. I don't know what would have happened if he didn't. I'll come with you yeah. to the mines. Yeah. So we said, okay, fine. So basically, I mean, if I carry on telling you this story, the podcast will last about four and a half hours. But I am <laughs> going to, so I'm going to try and cut it short. But our journey started at that moment. I'd never ridden a camel or been on a camel in my life. I spent five and a half weeks on a camel. Um, the five first day was so uncomfortable I ended up walking and don't think you know when you go to Egypt and you do a camel ride with a saddle there's no saddles there's no nothing you're riding bareback you have to kind of arrange yourself around the hump and you're an experienced horse rider I am (laughs) and they're very different from horse yeah um and I had a camel he was beautiful I called him Duncan um he was white (laughs) he had enormous eyelashes um and he was very very patient with me but the first day we traveled for about 11 hours and I was so uncomfortable I ended up walking most of it and it was the hardest physically and psychologically the hardest journey I've ever done I didn't see another woman in the entire time that I uh, their women don't do this journey and there are no women mining salt so there were times 
when I longed for my female friends and a bottle of Chardonnay, I will confess. But I, I, I know I will never do another journey like that. That was so, it, it had such an extraordinary impact on me. And it was just to experience a landscape in a way that, that was so unsullied there was no, there was no engines, there was no tires. It was, you know, me and four men and 50 camels and, you know, a sack of dates and a sack of rice. And we would get up in the morning when, and the morning sometimes was two o'clock in the morning and, and Rahman would shout, Adrunatai! And that meant make tea and you'd make a little fire using camel dung and because of course there's no wood anywhere. And, uh, and, and you'd make your tea in your little pot and the first... Uh, the first glass, it was served in glasses, was the glass that woke you up. It was like the shot of espresso. <laughs> and then the second glass was the glass that you enjoyed because it was the tea was its sort of perfect strength and delicious because <laughs> you poured water in between each glass. Right. And then the third glass was known as the child's tea because by then the leaves had lost their potency and it <laughs> was just kind of brown water. And it was... As I say, I've never, we, we had no common language. We had no common culture. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't understand that we didn't know about camels. Why didn't we know about camels? Did we not have camels in our country? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. No, I live in Shepherd's Bush. I think the most valuable lesson, I mean it taught me it it, it taught me that I had a resilience and a stubbornness and a toughness that I didn't realise I had. Um, it taught me the the value of traditional way of life that they that it that it's valid. You know, we live in the Western world and you know look down on people who lead these sort of apparently old fashioned, you know, who the hell trades salt anymore? And yet for them it was a honourable and very successful livelihood. But it was hard one. They worked incredibly hard. Um and they took great pride in it. And so to learn that, you know, something that we might write off as sort of ridiculously old fashioned and impractical isn't. Um, but I think the most important thing that I learned from that experience was that, you know, if somebody says you should do something else, like most people would say, you should have taken that BBC job. You know, you should have... No, I shouldn't. Mm. I, my heart and my gut told me, do this journey. And I did it. And since, I don't know whether you can even go to Timbuktu anymore. It's been overrun by Al-Qaeda. Um, that whole region has suffered desperately. If I hadn't done it in 1999, mm. I'd be sitting here saying my biggest travel regret is that I didn't do it. Oh, I'm so... 
so happy for you that you got to have that incredible life-changing experience I feel like you must have had some connection there in a past life potentially yeah it sort of felt like that (laughs) absolutely epic thank you for sharing that with us pleasure chapter four then Kate is the hardest one of all your all-time favorite destination where would you pick for that well funnily enough I mean it is the hardest one of all but I was always of the mind that you didn't go back to places. You know, there was so much of the world to see. Mm. And as I say, you know, curiosity, you just want to keep finding new places. But about 11 or 12 years ago, um, I was, I had an insane work schedule. And actually, I was traveling all over the place for it. Um, and I desperately, desperately needed a break. And I said to my husband, I don't really know. All my dates were kind of up in the air. It was just one of those kind of everyone was being chaotic. And I said, right, let's try and book a week in August. And he's like, A, it's now June. We're never going to be able to find anywhere in August. And it's August. Why are we going away in August? You know, we don't have kids. We don't have to do that August thing. And I said, I know, but all the people I'm working with do have kids. So I think that's the most likely time that I'm going to be able to get a week a window, off. Yeah. A window. And he said, oh, well, I don't know. What do you want to do? And I said, do you know what? I just want to find like a shack by a river somewhere. I want to eat tomatoes, swim in a river, read books. I don't want to see anyone. I don't want to speak to anyone. I don't want, I don't want there to be any electricity or anything, any connection with the modern world. I just want that. And he's like, how are we going to find that? What do we put in Google? I said, okay, you leave that to me because what do we put in Google? Yeah. I said, you leave that to me because I'm, I'm a good researcher. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was working actually in West Wales at the time and we had no phone signal, but we did have internet and I found a shack on a lake in somewhere in France and it sounded perfect and it was through a website that I don't think exists anymore called Owners Direct and so I sent it to I said look this looks amazing and I sent it to Ludo and he phoned the couple whose name was listed on the website and they said we've just had a cancellation for the very week and I was like oh my goodness amazing And then, of course, I worried that actually it was going to be like some sort of centre parks and there was going to be loads of cabins around a lake and people with jet skis and it was going to be my idea of sheer hell. But we just didn't have any choice by that stage. And then the owner said, now it's quite hard to find. So what we'll do is we'll meet you in the local village outside the supermarket and then you can follow. And I thought, well, that's a good sign. It can't be, you know, it can't be that on the beaten track if, if that's what has to happen. Oh, my goodness, Holly. This little cabin was in a wood in, it's basically within the Limousin National Park. So it's the very, very north of the Dordogne. Mm -hmm. There's no kind of, you know, people think of the Dordogne and it's sort of, you know, it's, it's Britain in France. You know, everyone goes there. They go for the Lascaux Caves. They go for the beautiful Dordogne villages. They go for the wine. They go blah, blah, blah. This is the very north of the Dordogne. Um, it's woody. It's actually not dissimilar to the Y Valley. It's kind of rolling and wooded, but there's no kind of great attractions there. So it was perfect. And there was the most beautiful shack. Tiny, 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 totally off grid, no electricity, nothing at all on a lake. We would fall out of the shack, jump into the water with no clothes on, sit, 
eat tomatoes, read books. It was literally the most heavenly week I'd ever had. It's what you dreamt of. It was what I dreamt of. And at the end of the week, the owners came to make sure that everything had been okay. And I said to them, literally, this has been the best holiday I've ever had. And they recognised me and said, but you've been everywhere. And I said, not quite, but believe me, what you have here is really, really special. And I said, I actually bought my husband, Ludo, a book once called How to Build a Log Cabin. I've always wanted to have like a little cabin. Mm. He's never opened the blinking book. Um, <laughs> but I said, we've been having cabin fantasies. And they went, have you? And I said, well, you know, it's a bit like a holiday romance. You know, you take home a bottle of limoncello and then you never open it. Um, I said, it's probably a bit like that. And they said, it's just that we know of a lake for sale just up the road. And I went, what? And they said, well... It's a funny thing in this part of France. People sell land, but actually mostly it's lake. And there are loads of these lakes and they were dug as fish ponds. And, and, and this particular lake, we know the people who are selling it. And it's got like a little kind of hut on, at the side of it. Do you want to go and see it? And we're, and we're like looking and going, well, it's sort of seven o'clock in the evening. We're leaving at five o'clock tomorrow morning. Of course we want to go and see it. We go and see it. It is the most heavenly, an acre of lakes surrounded by trees in the middle of the wood with the ugliest little shack you have ever seen on the side of it. Yeah. And we just went, of course we're going to buy it. I don't know what with. We'll sell everything. But of course we're going to buy it. We've had that little shack on a lake in the middle of a French wood for 10 years. Oh. And it is my favourite place on earth. Oh, how lovely. What a gorgeous connection to... And obviously so intertwined with nature yeah. as well, yeah. which is, I guess, yeah. why you love it so That's much. I love it so much. Oh, well, I mean, it sounds like the ultimate hidden gem, our next chapter, chapter five. Uh, but I mean, you have been to some of the most remote places on the planet. Mm. When I think about a hidden gem, it's a place that you love that my listeners perhaps wouldn't know so much about or wouldn't have had the opportunity to experience yeah. so where comes to mind for that well I struggled with this one because as you say I have had the extraordinary privilege to be able to travel all over the place and um and I I kind of I came up with well I came up with a with three oh excellent Is that a, am I, I love that yes so please. I'll just go through them really quickly um one of them is a place called Duramacot. And Duramacot is a, um, uh, an area of rainforest in Malaysian Borneo. And I went there um, because it is one of the best places in the world to see clouded leopard. And clouded leopard are a particularly beautiful cat. They're very difficult to see. Mm. I'm going to say, full disclosure, I spent a week there and I didn't see a clouded leopard. Right. But... I did see extraordinary wildlife. It's not set up really for tourism. I stayed in an old forestry shack. Most of the stuff you're seeing, you're seeing at night, so you don't really sleep. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's a place for really hardcore wildlife enthusiasts. But if it's, that's you, if you want to see orangutan during the day and incredible birds and then spend all night, and bearing in mind this is a rainforest as well, so you get very wet, you're in an open, very uncomfortable Land Rover bumping along one forestry track. You're in, it's not primary forest, it's really interesting habitat. But I saw... Every night we went out, I saw something we hadn't seen the day before. 
that doesn't happen very often. So it is, as I say, it's not for everybody at all. Certainly not your kind of first time, let's go and have a look at wildlife trip. Mm. But if you're hardcore and you don't mind getting wet and you don't want any creature comforts whatsoever, it is an astonishing location. Ugh, I love that. Wildlife. And you've also answered my next question because I was going to ask you about like your ultimately, you know, intrepid wildlife experience. So that sounds like it certainly answers that yeah. one. Yeah. Um, the other place is a place that I went to in the early 90s. So it may not be quite such a hidden gem anymore, um, but it's in Madagascar. I had longed, longed, longed to go to Madagascar, partly down to an astonishing woman called Hilary Bratt, who I'm sure you've heard of and who started the Bratt Guides. And she's yeah. been my kind of mentor and inspiration for oh, very many years. Right. And the very first travel article I wrote was about Madagascar. It's the first one that I got published uh, back in 1996. And I went to Madagascar in 95 and there was a place that I had read about. Again, it had almost mythical status and it's called the Zingi de Bemera. And it is this extraordinary landscape that looks like another planet. And it's this highly eroded um, limestone plateau with deep crevasses and, you know, vegetation, flora and fauna that you do not get anywhere else. I mean, that for me was always the attraction of Madagascar, obviously, but this place is so extraordinary. There are limestone peaks that are as sharp as needles. Mm. These amazing, you know, the, the sort of what we call the elephant trees, these sort of pachyderm trees, these sort of long aerial roots. I mean, it is mind-blowing. It took us nine days to get there, and we had to do it on foot and by boat, And oh. but it was absolutely worth it. It is extraordinary. It's probably a lot easier to get there now, and I hope it hasn't been too overrun. I mean, you know, it's a ridiculous thing to say about Madagascar, but... It, it's a very, very, as a landscape, it's, it, it blows your mind. Mm. It's like another world. Oh, it sounds magical. It's magical. And then the third place, again, it's a little bit out there, and I'm sorry to everybody who's going, well, I'm not going to Afghanistan. You've got to be kidding. But it is in Afghanistan. And a very dear friend of mine called Johnny Bilby, who runs a company called Wild Frontiers, which is a very ethical travel company. Yeah. And he has always, their travel, he's always wanted their travel to count and to support uh, the communities in which they take their guests. And he had always been intrigued uh, by the Silk Roads and by kind of Central Asia and that area. He knows Pakistan extremely well, but he was he knew about this area called the Wakhan Corridor in the very north of Afghanistan, and he was really intrigued by it. It's a mountainous area. Um, it's a the 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 corridor itself is a valley that's the valley floor is at 3,000 meters. So it's high altitude everywhere you go. And he just thought that it would be an amazing area for trekking. And he sent me on a recce there in 2009. And it was mind-blowing. It was so beautiful. The people, the Waki, the, the, the group that live in that part of Afghanistan, Again, I mean, the hospitality. They're the most joyful people. I mean, we just laughed 
all the time. We had snowball fights. We had, it was just, it was just, it was so special that when I was asked to do a documentary uh, in around 2012 for the BBC, and it was about the history of shepherding, and they wanted to go somewhere that, you know, there, there was a sort of the feeling of what shepherding might have been like 10,000 years or, you know, several thousand years ago. Sheep were first domesticated about 10,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent. So we're talking about that sort of region, that region yeah. of Afghanistan. Yeah. And I said, we just go to the Wakhan because yeah. they are shepherds and they are living and shepherding in a way that is probably unchanged for maybe not 10,000 years, but certainly a thousand. And so we went back. And the people, they remembered me. Did they? Oh. And, and it was just, it was, it, it's a, as I say, it's a very, very, very special place. And something that happens a lot is that whole countries get wiped off the visitor map because they have a bad rep. Mm. And Afghanistan, of course, has one of the most difficult reputations uh, there is. But no country, no entire country or people should be written off just because of one part of it. And that was a good lesson to learn going to the Wakan. And it is, yeah. it is a hidden gem. It's beautiful. Ugh, it sounds amazing. And for intrepid walkers, yeah, a place, to, a place to have on their bucket list. Well, in contrast to that absolutely magnificent sounding selection of hidden gems <laughs> chapter six okay is our penultimate chapter and that is your worst travel experience or the place that you would just never go back to well it's I'm very conscious of um you, you know places again places being written off just because you've had a bad time maybe getting there or you've eaten a bad meal which isn't the fault of the place it's just you know bad luck on that yeah, particular day totally I mean for me Often the worst travel experience is nothing to do with the place and everything to do with, you know, an airport being rubbish or, yeah. you know, a plane being cancelled or trains being delayed. I did have, and, and, and the other thing is, and you know this, Holly, as a traveller, that bad travel experiences make great stories. So actually, <laughs> you know, is there really such a thing as a bad travel experience? I mean, I had a really difficult travel experience in Siberia. I was filming with reindeer, nomadic reindeer, herders in Siberia in the winter and to get to them we had to travel in what's called a truckle and these are these basically special vehicles that can go across the tundra um, and go and go across snow and, and basically you know permafrost yeah and they're immensely uncomfortable they're basically like being in a giant biscuit tin with huge wheels that don't you know sink through the snow and everything else for someone and, with motion sickness I feel like so many of your stories have involved very uncomfortable yeah vehicles. I mean, this, was, this was spectacularly <laughs> uncomfortable and you know it's driven by somebody called Igor and 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 there were two of them and we've got all our filming kit and our boxes and everything and we are literally being rattled away and it wasn't far it was like I don't know I think it was barely a hundred kilometers we were going nine hours into this journey and there's no windows or anything I mean it's just horrendous it's hor and it was minus 40 so everything was freezing the diesel was freezing every, you know the 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 nuts that held the wheels on were freezing Igor would get out and kind of bash something and oh you know um, it's pitch dark because of course this is Siberia in December there's like half a minute of daylight um and we basically we got to a point where we broke down so catastrophically we couldn't go anywhere 
we couldn't do anything and one we had one so one vehicle just wasn't working so the other vehicle was still working and their answer was we should go back i'm like we've traveled for nine hours there is no way we are going back there has to be somewhere around here and sure enough we found this encampment um of people they were all um the 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 reindeer herders who had lost their herds through a dramatic winter storm and had ended up working in this, it was like a workhouse. I mean, these guys were desperate and miserable. It was like turning up into some, I don't know, just awful kind of medieval work camp. And they were living in, it was, they were shipping containers. And there was a room that we were assigned with these sort of weird bunk beds that didn't have any mattresses and so we got into this room and with all our stuff and think well we'll try and get some sleep and we were kind of I was freezing I imagine it was actually it was quite warm they were it was warm they were in there okay well that's something so that was something there's nothing to eat I mean there was nothing there's absolutely nothing we're just ragged with exhaustion I'm sleeping on the floor you know we're just kind of getting wherever we can get to and then at two o'clock in the morning somebody tried to break through the door with an axe (laughs) oh my god and at this point we're just thinking really I mean you know and they just they were the only way they could get through life was to get really drunk and then really violent so we had to push all the bank beds all our filming equipment everything we just had to ram it against the door to stop them breaking in oh my god how surreal like the whole it thing was, just it sounds was, like it was a, a weird, very very surreal film. thing i can say that the rest of the journey eventually when we got to meet an annette family who took us in they were incredible i mean I, i've never known temperatures like it the coldest day we had was minus 54 and that i mean you just you can't function no. um but they again you know once we were with them and living, I was living in their chum, which is a TP, but they call it a chum. Uh, I was living with them and, uh, and, and, and it was wonderful. But that journey to get there, my goodness. Crucial. Yeah. <laughs> Kate, it has just been such a joy to chat to you today, hearing your travel diaries all around the world. We're on to our final chapter now, chapter seven. And that is the destination that is at the top of your travel bucket list. Where is left? for you to discover well lots actually and again I'm afraid I couldn't narrow it down to one um I'd love to walk across Japan I used to work for a Japanese company I have been to Tokyo airport and no further oh wow so you've got all of Japan so I've got all of Japan to discover and I thought I'm not a city person as you know I don't particularly have any wish to go to Tokyo or to the big Japanese cities but um, everything I've read and heard about it, there's wonderful wildlife, there's beautiful, you know, there's beautiful mountain landscapes. And oh, yeah. I, I do love a mountain. <laughs> so I'd love to walk across Japan. But similarly, there's a long distance walk in Wales right on my doorstep called the Glindow Way. And I've done a couple of long distance walks in Wales. Uh, I've walked across the Brecon Beacons, 100 miles across the Brecon Beacons, and I've walked the Wye Valley. Um, but the Glindow Way is on my list. And then 
then again, not particularly exotic, but just places that I would really love to go to. Poland properly. I'd lo- I mean, again, for the wildlife, Romania, mm. the mm. same. Oh, Albania, yeah. those sort of central European countries that perhaps get a little bit overlooked, but I would love to go to those. Wow. Well, we'll have to keep keep watch and see where you head to next. How exciting the world is, our oyster. It is. Kate Humble, those were your travel diaries. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, a huge thank you to the lovely Kate Humble, another guest who was originally on my dream guest wish list and what a fabulous storyteller she is. And speaking of storytelling, Kate has a new book out called Where the Hearth Is, Stories of Home, which interestingly, given that we spoke mostly about travel, is all about home questioning the notion of home is it a tangible place or is it a state of mind and it considers the views of lots of others living uniquely extraordinarily and happily it is a fascinating and really comforting read which i thoroughly recommend a great christmas present i think and thank you again to the chelsea townhouse for having us and thank you so much for listening today If you'd like to hear more from the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe or if you use Apple Podcasts to press follow so that a new episode lands in your podcast app each week. If you want to be the first to find out who is joining me on next week's episode, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein and you'll also find me on threads and TikTok. I'd love to hear from you. And if you can't wait until next week, remember there's the first nine seasons to catch up on. That's over 100 episodes to keep you busy there. Don't forget that all the destinations mentioned by my guests are included in the episode show notes here on your podcast app and listed on my website, thetraveldiariespodcast.com. Thanks again, everyone. Take care and I'll be back next week. 